you know, when you get the people making the products as close to the customer people using and getting value out of the products as possible, those people are going to solve those problems a lot better uh, the closer they are. And I think that's what, you know, that's what Agile tries to teach. That's what a lot of these, you know, how do you shorten that feedback loop and shorten that cycle so that the people making and the people getting value um, are really close in close contact. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast, where we share with you the business stories, ideas, and trends shaping the future of customer experience, told firsthand by the experts themselves in thought-provoking conversations. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. Welcome to the Human Insight Podcast. This week, we're chatting with C. Todd Lombardo, Vice President of Product and Experience at Openly. But before we get started, we wanted to add a new section to the podcast called UT Insights, where we get user feedback on a range of topics from current news and trends to how teams are using Insight to improve their customer experiences. Today, we're talking with Nathan Isaacs. Nathan produces our Human Insight podcast. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Janelle. Nathan, what are we going to listen to today? As you've mentioned on the show recently, After four seasons, we felt it was time to see what is and is not working with listeners. If you're a regular listener, you may have already noticed that we've made a couple of tweaks by adding a new introduction and outro to the show. In this first clip, I ran a quick test in user testing, asking podcast listeners to compare the old introduction with an alternative. Here's what they had to say. But it's uh, somehow, I feel like it's it's a bit uh, long. I don't have to call it heavy. But it's definitely very polite, and and it sounds not very approachable. It reminds me more like the introduction of an university lecture than um, a real podcast. So it's kind of um, a bit too wide and too uh, complicated explanation. Uh, it confuses me a little bit. And you have a second clip? Yes. This is a response to hearing the alternative. I prefer the alternative one. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the alternative one is quite good. So this is more engaging and more realistic, especially compared to the other podcasts. Um, It kind of explains a bit closer how actually... uh, what what we can actually hear in this podcast and uh, what type of conversation uh we will get from uh, we will get and um, yeah definitely uh it, it is more informative and it's a lot of uh, it's simpler and uh easier to understand i like this one better i uh, it sounds more engaging it's still formal but uh, it has a different edge and, you know, having like thought-provoking conversations, told first, you know, it's, um, it's more engaging. It's like you'll have, uh, I know that you're listening to a podcast, but like the experience when uh, it feels as if the person on the other side is having a conversation with you and as if you could answer at any point. So if I hear this, it gives me the in- this the feeling as we are setting up that type of situation. So that's nice. Anything else? 
Regular listeners will recognize that we changed the show's ending, too. That was based on an earlier test we ran. If you listen to episode 39 in our conversation with Dan Meisner from Pacific Content, we heard how listeners never leave a review or a rating for our show. That was a bit of an aha for us, since we and just about every other podcast out there ask for a review and rating as part of their outro. It was pretty clear we were going to stop doing that. Test contributors liked the new outro, saying it was straightforward and that they appreciated that we solicited their feedback. We have more tests we're planning to run, ranging on show notes to episode artwork, and we'll be rolling out those tweaks over the next few months. And listeners can help. In the show notes is a link to a quick survey about the podcast, including an option to join as a contributor to share their thoughts about upcoming changes. Thank you. Thanks, Janelle. Hi, everyone. I'm Janelle Estes, Chief Insights Officer at User Testing. And I'm Andy McMillan, CEO at User Testing. And today we're very excited to have joining us on the Human Insight Podcast, uh, C. Todd Lombardo, who is Vice President of Product and Experience at Openly. As an insurance tech startup, Openly empowers agents to deliver a higher standard of service through cutting-edge technology and comprehensive options. C. Todd is also the author of three books. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and what's keeping you busy these days? Sure. My background, I'm, I'm a little bit of a mutt undergraduate, uh, studied science as an undergrad, and then engineering, started graduate school in in actually chemistry, and then moved to engineering. So I've kind of been all all over the place, and I actually have graduate degrees in business and design. So uh, I have a little bit everywhere, uh, I think, because I just like to learn stuff. I started my career in, in biotechnology, and one of the things that's been a lot of fun about that is in the bio biotech space, you have to be a systems thinker. And when it comes to like design and product, it's a really good skill set to have is be looking at things from a system level and not as an individual detail. So yeah, started out as an engineer um, at a biotech company, moved pretty quickly into the product space, and then was at a handful of different biotech startups. And what I learned is that, I didn't learn it until later, but that a lot of the product manager roles I was doing had both a mix of like marketing, design, and actual product management. So I was doing a lot of these things that I didn't really know exactly what discipline they were from. Um, I was actually designing the user interfaces for some of the products that we were we were putting out there. And I didn't realize that, oh, there was a whole design discipline that, that should be doing this. Uh, I didn't realize that until much later on in my career. But yeah, mostly I've been B2B um, product management and user experience design and a mix of both in-house and consulting positions as well. So it's been it's been kind of fun. I see the pros and cons of both. Uh, on the one hand, you get to, uh, this sort of broad view of a lot of different companies and business models. And on the other side, like you get to go deep on one particular industry and one particular business model and one particular product. So it's been fun. And um, where I'm at now at Openly, where um, we're an insurance tech company, we're trying to do something a little bit differently. A lot of the insurance techs go straight to consumer. They, they're trying to like cut out the agent almost and saying, hey, look, we can use technology to replace what an insurance agent does. And our philosophy is, no, the insurance agents are really valuable because insurance is very nuanced. So let's design something for them and and help them provide better service to their customer base. So it's a little bit B2B to C in a, in a sense. And yeah, I'm responsible for the product management and design teams here. And it's been, uh, it's been just about a year and it's been a wild ride and, and a lot of fun. When you think about 
this evolving area of product management, I mean, even, you know, we talk about the specific challenge of the pandemic, but just broadly, when you think about what it's like to be a product leader these days, what do you think is the future of like the role of product management, how product management works together with, with design and research and things like that? Like, how do you see the role evolving? It's interesting. Cause I was just, I was just in the middle of putting together, like the history of product management in my own head to just to share with my, my team. And like going all the way back to like, what's his name? McElroy and that sort of like the brand man memo back in the 19, I think 30s-ish. And part of it is I don't think it's actually changing too much in that still the biggest thing is how do you deliver value to a customer and a business at the same time? And as a product manager, there's a lot of different functions that you have to help align to be able to deliver value to both of those parties um, at a minimum. And uh, you're the glue, right? You're kind of like gluing all this together saying, hey, there is this product. We're trying to deliver it to, to market to offer some, solve some problem for a customer, but also do it in a way that's going to make us some money <clears throat> because we need to stay, uh, stay profitable to be survive as a business. Otherwise, we won't be able to afford to hire employees, et cetera. I don't think that is going to change much. The evolution is going to be how we do it and how we do it in... in <laughs> product is already uncertain and we've got this other layer of pandemic and hybrid or, you know, I don't think it's actually the dust has not settled as to what work culture is going to be like in the future. So there's just a couple other layers of uncertainty on top of it, which I think we need to take into account of what does that look like and how do we manage that as a team? How do we still pull our teams together in the right way? How do we support them and give them the right tools? I think those are the things that are going to change, but we're just dealing with a, a, a higher level of uncertainty right now, more than anything else. Yeah, I think what's I think you're you're spot on with the uncertainty, especially when it comes to you know teams working together and finding new ways to work together to build these great experiences for our customers. I think we're still working out all of that. Like there is no norm quite. There isn't a norm quite yet. Yeah. However, I don't know if you've seen this in your sort of experience since the pandemic, you know, started what almost we're going into our third year of it, but it almost feels like the challenges that we had on the other side of the house, which is connecting with your customers and making sure that you're getting regular feedback from them. It's, I've heard from many that it's actually become almost easier in a sense because everybody is home. <laughs> Everybody's kind of looking for to make a connection, if you will. And uh, you, you sort of get rid of all of those barriers of like, okay, now we have to go, especially with B2B, we have to go to someone's office. We have to schedule time with them. We have to block part of their day. We have to bring yeah. our to death. Like, have you noticed that, that shift as well? Yes, uh, I have. And they're definitely because of the tools, Zoom, Slack, like those two tools uh, specifically, but you know, what they represent is a more immediacy or the availability of being able to reach out and touch somebody and connect with somebody really quickly. Like with Slack, anybody in your company is now a quick message away. It's not like you have to go upstairs, find them in an office, right? You can easily find them on Slack and send them a message immediately or tag them in a particular channel. And oftentimes people are home and have a broader swath of availability. So you can find the right time to connect with them over a Zoom call. I have a, another insight that I think would be useful to share perhaps in that when we were doing our, our conversations for the product research rules book, um, Aris and I came across a, a team that was interviewing um, customers about their finances and they did it remotely. 
And what they noticed is that, and they were, this was before the, well before the pandemic. And when they, they had a handful of interviews where because they were remote and they were like in the living room of the person, so to speak, they weren't actually, they were there, but not there. The couple, uh, there was a couple couples that got into arguments about their finances. And one was specifically about like the, the husband didn't want the vacation home to be in like their joint account or as a joint name. And he expected, or, or his assumption was that it was going to be in his name and not both of theirs. And so they just got in this big argument about why and, and, and about how they actually divided their assets. And, and it was just this really interesting thing that the researcher, as they were telling us, they said, you know, I don't think this argument would have happened had we actually been in the room. The fact that we weren't there and we were just on a virtual Zoom that, you know, we were just a couple of faces on a screen, our physical presence wasn't there. They got better insights because the couple actually like shed those like niceties we often have when we're in front of other people and they got deeper insights because of, because of that conversation. So I thought that was a really interesting story. And I, and I, I think I've, I've experienced very similar, maybe not that extreme uh, level of insights from talking to different customers too. I've had similar situations, right. Where, where you're not actually in the room, you're actually just connected over something like Zoom, like we are, or even, you know, with the user testing solution is unmoderated. So you don't even have a person there. And so t- people tend to be a lot more forthcoming and, and share a lot more because they're not actually engaging with a human, as weird as that sounds. It's like they're sort of off the record, if you will. It's funny, Andy was asking you about your product background. I also noticed that you wrote a book about product research and research is really where, you know, I grew up and it's a big passion for me. So like those two things together are like exciting for, for the two of us. Um, what I'm so, so curious, what prompt, like as a product leader and somebody who's been in the product space, working with lots of different companies, you know, you, you've got, you know, a couple books that you've written on design sprints and, and other product related topics, but then you narrowed into product research. I'm curious what prompted you to write that book. Yeah, it actually started out with a conversation around what do you do before a design sprint? And it initially was like, okay, well, you need to actually have some inputs to a design sprint. Like you can't just show up at the beginning and be like, all right, what are we going to do? Okay, let's go through these steps and kind of like go through the actual, you actually have to have something to as input, you know, like classic, you've heard this phrase, garbage in, garbage out, right? So if you don't have enough research or enough data, enough information prior to running any kind of design sprint, you may not get anything that you might get some value out of it in terms of alignment, in terms of some, some initial customer touch points, but it, it was like, yeah, that we, we felt like there was something before that, that needed to, ha- to happen. And we were initially thinking like, should we call it like a research sprint? And we, Aris and I were sort of spitballing it, I think at a conference and um, it was like, yeah, I don't know if we really wanted to write like some method book or like what, you know, what methods you should use to do research. And um, I said, well, there still seems to be like a gap in the conversation around like, there's plenty of talk about user research. There's plenty of talk about market research. There's plenty of talk about analytics, but how do you bring all those three, three things together? Because to be a product leader, you actually have to have all of those things. You have to think about them all holistically. And uh, I don't think anyone was really trying to bring them together. So it's not like we were trying to craft any new ground. We're just saying, Hey, I think there's a gap in the conversation. And we've also, Aris and I and MC all noticed that we've worked on failed products ourselves. We've seen a number of companies fail in terms of the products they deliver to market. And so we're like, well, 
why do we keep doing this to ourselves? Why are we wasting time, energy, and resources on products that don't work or are failing? What, what's happening here? Is there, is just, there not enough conversation around this? And I think a lot of the product failures that, that out there, you can probably boil it down to they didn't do their homework, right? They didn't do their research enough in, in a way that would give them the right insights to it. So I think that was sort of the, the impetus for draw, tr trying to say, hey, look, do a bit of homework, do a bit of product research before you start to go too far down the line. And we've heard variations of this story before. A lean startup tried to tell us like, hey, validate your assumptions and ideas before you actually build stuff, right? Um, we've heard variations of that story. And we're just saying, I think there's a gap in a conversation. And I think we might be able to fill it with a handful of rules. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I love this idea too of thinking about it as combining, you know, typically when you think about product research, you default to user research, right? Because that is falls underneath oftentimes the product umbrella. But your point, like there's analytics, there's market research, there's other types of research you have to pull in to get the full perspective. It's more than just, you know, showing somebody an idea or having them use an interface to make sure it's easy to use. Exactly, exactly. You know, do you need to do some generative research and, and sort of learn about behaviors and patterns? Or, or is it you need to do some more descriptive kind of research? Like, hey, I've got an idea. I have know some, some basic uh, informations or I have some possibilities. I need to, to get, dig deeper into understanding what's the why here. Or is it like, I've got a prototype and some ideas and, and how do I validate? This is the right, the right solution for the problem, right? Mm -hmm. the, the type of research will, will vary. Right. For the product teams that you lead and, and how you think about understanding customers and, and this, this sort of idea of collecting feedback and use, doing user research, do you tend to have that live within a specific role or team, or do you encourage your entire product team to be sort of hands-on with customers? Like how does oh, that? Oh, the latter. <laughs> the latter. Yeah. I don't think you want to outsource it to have just one team responsible for it, right? It's like kind of having the team responsible for quality. It's like if only one team is responsible for quality, like everyone should be responsible for quality. Yeah. I really try to empower all the teams to be able to do this themselves to some degree. They, they should have the capability. Yes. You might want to have a a uh, you know, team of experts, so to speak, somewhere, but maybe embed them across uh, the teams or make them available so that the teams can do this with them, right? It shouldn't be a do it for me. It should be a do it with me if it's a, if you have a team of experts. So I, I always encourage the teams to do it themselves. It's because then they, they see it for their own eyes. They're not looking at it from an interpretive perspective. You know, when you get the people making the products as close to the customer, people using and getting value out of the products as possible, those people are going to solve those problems a lot better uh, the closer they are. And I think that's what, you know, that's what Agile tries to teach. That's what a lot of these, you know, how do you shorten that feedback loop and shorten that cycle so that the people making and the people getting value um, are really close in close contact. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, I think this is one of those topics where some teams actually do have a group of people kind of owning, understanding the customers and then others spread the love and sort of the way that you're thinking about it. And so uh, we find ourselves you know, talking to leaders that have both of those perspectives. So it's helpful to hear. And, and by the way, I, I'm in your camp in terms of getting the, <laughs> getting everyone to be on board with understanding the customer. Otherwise, to your point, it's like a game of telephone, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's not intentional, right? Nobody, nobody nope. intends to, for misinterpretation to happen, but like some team goes off and does this, they learn a bunch of stuff, they codify, put it in a report, that report gets translated or gets, you know, extras get pulled out and put it into a PowerPoint somewhere and presented like there's a bunch of touch points where some of the context is lost. And that's the unfortunate part. Um, again, it's not, nobody's intentionally trying to lose that context, but some of the tools we have are useful, like putting snippets together to say, Hey, here's some great video snippets. Um, you know, one of the, one of the projects we just recently led, we 
tried to codify these little video snippets so that you say, all right, just show me all the things around uh, around binding an insurance policy. So when you actually like quote the policy is like, here's it's going to cost a thousand dollars a year. And when you bind is when you actually sell it. And what are the what are the kickoff of the document? So we can say, hey, what is it? What are all the things that came up around policy binding? And we can just have all these little snippets associated with it. And we could share those uh, in small anecdotes, which would be useful. But again, it's it's good for sharing, but sometimes, again, you want to try to keep that context there. So if you have the team be part of that, that's useful rather than sort of outsourcing it to a, a somebody else. I think that's right. And I would add, I think in addition to context, I sometimes feel the authenticity of it sort of can get lost too, right? I used to find as a product manager, I could go talk to a bunch of customers and then I'd be back in a meeting with my engineering team and my designers and you know, you get used to always saying as a product manager, all the customers are telling me this, all the customers are telling me they want this. And it starts to sound a lot like your opinion with the preface of customers are telling me this. And so I think there's a certain level of validity, not to even getting to the end result and saying, see, look, they're saying it too, but to sort of helping bring your team along with you. It's like, we're all seeing these things. We're all getting these bits of feedback. And, you know, my job as a product manager is to help synthesize them and come up with ideas with the design team. But like, I, I, I think that was, um, you know, I was doing this years ago in, in very old school waterfall kind of ways at, you know, at places like Oracle back before we were doing agile and cloud. And, you know, I would find I'd spend months out talking to customers, but then I'd spend a couple hour meeting with engineering, telling them all the things customers said to go do. And it was really tough to sort of bring that authenticity. It's, it's just different to, to see a handful of customers mm-hmm. say something versus to hear the interpretation of a product manager who heard from some customers, some things yeah. that we should go do. And so I think you're right. Like it, it is both, you know, alignment around it, but it's also sort of the, the authenticity of it that, that really sort of pulls through. Yeah. Brings a reality to it, which then grounds, grounds it in, in reality, which is useful. Yeah. One of the things we've been uh, talking about, it's been a bit of a theme on the, on the podcast is this idea of, you know, it's gotten easier to collect this kind of feedback. And we've been talking about that. Like, you know, people are tech enabled, you go get this stuff. How do you think about synthesizing that feedback? I mean, we're talking now about how do you bring the engineering team along, but as you go up into, into more senior leadership, as you're trying to get buy-in with the marketing team or the CEO or the, you know, the sales team in a B2B context of, of decisions, um, what do you have any thoughts on how to kind of share these insights or ways that you mm. see to kind of align the company around what customers are saying. Cause that's also, you know, part of the challenges yeah. as a product manager is like, you, you don't just have to get the engineering team going. You kind of got to get everybody going the same direction. <laughs> yeah. We have, I think one of the, one of the rules in product research rule is like insights are best shared and sort of the, the subtle, the subtext rule is never write a report, right? You don't want to just write this big, long report and just send it around and say, here, go read this. Cause one, they're really ever read, but part of it is how do you make, how do you bring people along for the ride? How do you bring them along in the journey in some way? Can you involve them before even just the insights are generated, right? So, and, I, and I'm still, I'll take the example of a design sprint uh, because it, it sort of nicely encapsulates to some degree. How do you involve an executive in design sprint? That that was a question I got hurt, uh, get asked a lot after I wrote that book. It's like, well, first include them and in, in just like the first half hour of the first day of when you're doing your assumption storming and, and trying to understand the problem you're solving, getting that context. I was like, you only need them there for the first part so that they have the opportunity to co-create with you and, and shape the problem you're trying to solve, then bring them in again at the end of the third day when you've gotten your sketches ready and you before you start prototyping, like, hey, these are the solutions we think we're going to try and build and prototype and test. And then bring them in again at the end of the last day and say, hey, look, we tested this and these are some of the videos from our conversations. These are some of the things we learned, right? So you've brought them along the way and it's not like they just showed up at the end and said, you know, here's what we got. 
they've actually have more visibility into the whole journey. So I think that's that's the hard part sometimes is obviously all leaders and executives are busy, but how do you find the way to to include them, right? It's that ask at, the ask of being co-creative to some degree and can you get their input along the way and bring them along that journey? That's probably the best most effective. It's hard, it's a lot it's not as easy, but that's probably the best way I've seen teams do that. I really like that. I I um I talk about this concept of participatory leadership, which is sort of mm-hmm. enabling leaders with the opportunity to participate along the way. Because it's really hard as a senior leader at the end of a process to be given sort of a binary choice of approve or don't approve this thing. It's like, well, the you know the team's been working on it, and and you know it, it disapprove is a hard like, no, we're not doing this. Yeah. But you know you sort of get stuck with like, well, this is you know it's a binary choice. And I think if you have a chance as a leader, and I really like the way you laid that out. Like in the very beginning, is we're setting up the assumptions and what we're going to go do. It's at one or two critical points along the way, and then in the end product. You sort of get buy-in along the way, and I think that uh, I think that's really good guidance. Yeah, I think the other thing is also when you're presenting things too. If you're presenting somebody who's coming in at the end, don't don't start with the beginning, right? Tell them like we've actually start with your conclusions first. Like here's where we ended, and then let me tell you how we got here, right? Because what you don't want to do is bring them on this journey like in a presentation, and they come to a different conclusion than you. Because like okay, all right, all right, all right, yeah, 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 and then they're like, wait, how did you get that conclusion from that start? Right? You don't want to do that. But start out with that conclusion first, and like, let me tell you how we got here and why, and that starts to paint a better uh, uh, a better way to if you're just doing a presentation um, for maybe you know a secondary or tertiary stakeholder. Sometimes that's super useful. Yeah, that's really good advice. All right. So I think we're going to move into our uh, lightning questions round. So this is a set of four questions that we ask uh, every guest on the podcast. So we'll start with uh, what's a book that you've recently read that you'd recommend to our listeners? Sure. This this one was really easy. uh, We have a book club at work and we just finished this uh, at the end of last year. And it kind of blew my mind. Um, It's called Nonviolent Communication. I think it's Marshall, Marshall Rosenberg. The, way, the book has some stories that have some dialogue that seems a little patronizing and pedantic, but the overall approach is really digging deep to the emotion behind every conversation and doing it in such a way that's very gracious and appreciates and under, tries to understand where that person is emotionally coming from, uh, because that can drive a lot of their behaviors and, and potential conflicts. And I think that really opened my eyes to how you can think about shaping and sharpening conversations and in, and having more inclusive conversations um, rather than dismissive conversations. So I, I just really, really, really useful. And I think as a product person, user experience person, that ability to connect with a variety of different stakeholders, the toolkit that that book offers is awesome. Yeah, that's great. I'm a, I haven't read it. I've definitely heard of it. I'm assuming that there's a, a strong thread around uh, empathy. Yeah, oh, yeah. There as well. Very much so. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what's a piece of advice that you'd give to someone who's trying to convince others to invest in customer feedback? You know, believe yeah. it or not, I'm sure you've seen it too, but sometimes it just doesn't happen. Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm very aware of that. I I, I think uh, I would just think about companies like, have you heard of airtime.com? Because they spent $42 million and it went nowhere. Have you heard of Juicero? Because they spent $118 million and it went nowhere. Or maybe you've heard of Kibi that was like 1.7 billion with a B and that also went nowhere. I think these are three examples of what I would call ego-driven development. For somebody who's unconvinced that getting feedback from customers is valuable, I want to know how deep your pockets are because you can get to the billions and still be a big failure without getting the right kind of feedback from your from your customer base. So 
there's also a fool's earn of like, look, okay, you want to, you want to go down there. That's great. But you just might fail. Like there's definitely a percentage chance you might be right. But as we talk about in our product research rules, rule number one, prepare to be wrong because you're probably going to be wrong in some way. How, how much wrong you are is going gonna, is gonna to vary, but you're probably going to be wrong somewhere. And there's plenty, of, there's plenty of failure studies out there, failure cases out there you can look at. Yeah. I love that idea of, of quoting examples instead of, you know, because I think there's different ways that you can talk to leaders about investing in customer feedback, but the most compelling way is really to storytell but also tie that to data or mm-hmm. real companies that have failed and the money investments and, and all of that kind yeah. of language. It's, it's the qual plus the quant, right? The qualitative story anecdote helps paint the context. And then here's here's the broader you know set of quantitative data that actually backs that whole thing up. So as somebody in the experience field, I'd love to hear your perspective on uh, a great experience that you've recently had uh, can be anything. And tell us what made it so great. I have two I can share. One is product related. One is not. One is not product related. Uh, it was just more of like an experiential thing with with me and friends is that my wife and I went to cross country ski on Sunday morning and I'm sitting there putting my uh, skis on and I hear my name called out from across the parking lot and I look over and it's a very close friend of mine who I usually ride bikes with, but yet we're at both had the same idea to, Hey, let's go cross country skiing. So that was just really cool. There's a level of serendipity and, and, you know, beat expectations. And wow, I had this great day skiing with somebody I didn't realize I was going to go skiing with. Um, So that was super fun. And the second one was a lot of restaurants have obviously moved online and had to adopt digital platforms to help facilitate their their online ordering. Uh, There's a company in the Boston area that's probably pretty nationwide, but it's called Toast. A lot of of restaurants have adopted this. And one thing I didn't realize is that once you've like ordered from one restaurant in the toast ecosystem. And if you order from another one, like it saves all your information if you want it. So you can actually apply everything and be super easy. So I remember there's a coffee shop that opened about a year ago here in, in Salem. And I think they adopted toast. And I think I logged in to just order a, a, a latte to go. And I was in a rush one morning. My wife's like, oh, can you get me one too? So I'm like, okay. So I'm trying to like rush in. And it was like, log in. And I was like, log in. I was like, toast. I'm like, okay. And they pulled in everything. Over. I was like, oh, this is so great that it just it was a simple little thing, but it was like, oh, wow, this saved me. It probably only saved me at the end of the day, probably just a handful of minutes of typing in name, address, all this stuff. But it just, it was, I was already in a rush. It solved that problem and we got our coffees a lot faster. <laughs> yeah. I've had that same experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But in both cases, and the reason why I share them both is in both cases, I had a certain level of expectation and both cases, my expectations were we're blown away and delighted uh, in different ways, right? And I think that's the thing is when you think about what makes a good experience or great experience, usually you just go, the expectations are surpassed in a positive way. I also feel like it's a really visceral challenge of please fill out this information before you have coffee. Like that just makes it that much more challenging. So I think of all the things we should automate, it's things in my life before I get coffee is where automation is the most needed. Very, very true. Very true, Andy. Funny. Um, when you think about the future of product, future of experience, what what are you most excited about? I think, I think, uh, I'll just say it: NFTs. Just kidding. <laughs> I wanted to see the looks on your faces. <laughs> um, Wait, now you're supposed to say metaverse. Right, right, right. Metaverse and the NFTs. No, um, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is the. You know, technology is never going to slow down. 
And even just as I, as I mentioned earlier, is that the product, the, the basics of product isn't really going to change. So that the foundation and fundamentals will still always be there. But I, I'm really excited about how, especially in today's world, the, the speed at which data and technology and communications can happen and what we can do with that uh, to make everyone's lives better as, as we have more like, yes, metaverse, but how do we cross the, the digital and physical divide better? Right? And I think that this past couple of years, the silver lining is we can still have a lot of human connections, even though there's, there's not necessarily face-to-face human. There's a lot of stuff there that we, we can still do as a, as a society. And that's what I think I'm really excited about. Yeah, I love that. That that's great, um, and certainly something to look forward to. And and uh, th- there's so much potential there. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, C. Todd, for joining us. This has been fantastic. Learned a lot from you. Great perspectives, and um, thanks for joining us. Andy, Janelle, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you liked it, please share it with a friend or coworker. If you think it could have been better, let us know. Email us at podcast at usertesting.com. Thanks.